we are continuing on in our series. We'll be wrapping up the historical and kind of theological context this week. I had anticipated doing all this last week, but it's okay. It is what it is. Um, we'll move into more of the uh, particulars um, uh, next week. So we're just going back to, if you're always like, why am I here again? What am I doing in this equipping our class? Like, what's the whole point? Here's the questions we're trying to answer, right? First one, who exactly were the Puritans? That's where we still are. We will move on eventually. Um, you know, we'll get to our next point, like in Mark's sermons. You know, we'll eventually get there. Um, what can they contribute to your everyday walk with the Lord? That's mainly where we want to spend our time, and we will get there um, next week, looking more devotionally. I always do a brief review. If you guys missed last week, again, these are all recorded online. I've got the notes and the slides up there. If you need help accessing it, just let me know. You're never bothering me. Text, email, 2 a.m., I will reply. Just kidding. Um, but you're never a bother. I'm more than happy to, if, if you want to look it up or, or try and, you know, if you're having trouble finding the slides and stuff like that, it's pretty simple, but always, always available. But these are what we looked at last week, these three kind of main points. I'm kind of just calling it, you know, guiding principles of Puritanism. We looked at historically, you know, what happened. Well, why did they do what they did? Um, number one, a critique of idolatry that encompassed the whole of Catholic worship. This was central. They really saw that what the Catholic Church was doing was blasphemous. This is idolatry. This is not what the Bible is teaching. And so that really was foundational. Uh, number two, an understanding of divine revelation is fixed or constant. The Word of God was inerrant. It was sufficient. It did not change. There was no tradition that would change it. The Roman Catholic Church can't just say, hey, here's what we're doing now. Contrary to the Word of God, they saw the sufficiency of Scripture in and through everything they did. And number three, high praise for the church on earth. They, you could maybe say, you know, rediscovered the centrality and the importance of the local church. Um, You know, so much of it was just tied to, you know, the universal church and what Rome was doing or something like that. And they realized, wait, the Bible is very clear on the importance of the local church here. So we spent all of our time last week on those. I just want to wrap these up this week and get on to some other things. Number four. Number four, discipline as a necessary feature of the Christian community. Discipline as a necessary feature of the Christian community. I read another awful, um, you know, critique of Puritanism. It's like, what were the Puritans like? Quote said, A Puritan is one who loves God with all his soul, but hates his neighbor with all his heart. I just thought that was funny. It's like, okay, wow. Um, But I think for some, I would just say this. For one, I don't know how biblically accurate that is because the Puritans certainly sought to obey uh, the Lord Jesus' great two commandments, right? Love God, number one. What's number two? Love your neighbor as yourself, okay? And uh, they loved the Bible and they sought to do that. So I think that guy's critique is just horrible. Um, But I don't know. I thought it was funny. So that's why I mentioned it. Um, But maybe for some, you know, this idea of discipline you know, it conjures up this kind of cold, condescending, you know, we talked about the scarlet letter, just miserable, you know, every Puritan was just out every single day, and it's just like, Jeff is going to mess up, and I'm going to catch him, and I'm just going to bring the hammer down, ah! you know, it's just like, that's what Puritanism was. No, that is not what was going on. It wasn't this cold, callous, horrible, miserable life. Um, no, in fact, in reality, the Puritans were simply picking up on the biblical doctrine of progressive sanctification. Those whom Christ justifies by his grace, he sanctifies by his grace. We'll get into that when we talk about uh, William Perkins' golden chain at the end. Um, Those who are justified by grace are sanctified. There's no one who is 
declared righteous, and then they don't live a sanctified life. It's not that they will be sinless, but rather that they will, you know, a simple way to put it is that they will sin less. They desire, uh, because of the Lord's work in their heart, to walk in obedience. Um, so this notion of discipline, really, what I think um, David Hall is trying to get at here is this idea of sanctification. In fact, in Greek, if you guys don't know this, sanctify, uh, you know, in, the, in other words, saints. You guys remember that? It's like to the saints that are in the church of, you know, Colossae or whatever. Sanctify and saints, they have that same uh, root word in Greek, hagios, holy, okay? Sanctify, uh, be cleansed. Um, it's dealing with holiness. That's actually why I called this class visible saints, is because that's what the Puritans were about, is that, hey, look, if you are saying, I'm a holy one, I'm a saint, you know, of the Church of London or whatever, then that needs to be visible, that needs to be lived out. And so they talk about a lot of times in their literature that so-and-so is a visible saint um, or stuff like that. They're simply living out the Christian life. Puritan said, look, the Bible says, be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Therefore, if someone... Uh, is not seeking to live a sanctified life, they don't have a legitimate claim as a believer. Um, Natalie and I just had some people over for dinner last night who I think they maybe actually got saved in between when we last met them, our neighbors, Brian and Megan, keep praying for them. And um, we were kind of dealing with this issue. It's like, well, what if someone claims to be, um, you know, a believer, but they're a practicing homosexual? It's like, what do you do with that? And we're just walking through this tension. Well, the Lord says, be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. If he said this is holy, righteous living, someone living contrary to that, then regardless of their claim, it doesn't matter, right? There's a disconnect there. And so the Puritans simply uh, reprioritize the biblical doctrine of church discipline, where members of the church have a responsibility towards one another in fighting against sin and keeping one another accountable and growing in righteousness uh, together. doesn't mean you go up and down, like I said, you know, with an angry glare, just trying to get Ed when he blows it. You know, that's not what we're talking about. John Dodd, this is a good quote. He's a Puritan pastor. He told his congregation that reproving sin needed to come from compassion to be effective. He warned, quote, a sour look and an austere, contemptuous gesture alienates men's hearts from us. So he's saying if you're going around and just condescending, looking around, trying to get someone, that's just going to alienate people more and more. Rather, it needs to um, come from compassion uh, for that discipline in the church to be effective. So that's point number four. Point number five, an evangelical and social activism predicated on transforming self, church, and society. Such a vast principle. This does not mean, contrary to what you may read, it's like, oh, social activism. Puritans, man, there's some social justice warriors. Uh, no. Actually, actually, kind of yes, but probably not in the way that you think. Um, they were Sabbatarians, meaning they would call Sunday the Lord's Day. They would call it the market day of the soul, okay? Where what you do on Sunday, you ain't playing any games, you ain't reading any novels, right? Uh, there are certain things that they would actually outlaw that you just simply cannot do. You can't go to stage plays, no dancing because it's inherently, um, you know, sensual, um, all kinds of things like that. No, I think it's maypoles. You know, you can't do some of these things. I would disagree with them um, on some of these things. But they were Sabbatarians, meaning the Lord's day is for the worship of the Lord. This doesn't mean, you know, I think sometimes we think of, man, Sabbatarian, that'd be so boring. Like I have to go to church and then I can't do anything the rest of the day. That's not actually what they were doing. 
they would fill their Lord's Day with spiritual exercises, filling it with going to church. You'd come home, you'd have church at home where you're worshiping, praying, all this stuff. You'd have a full day. That's why they call it the market day of the soul. It's like your soul is going to the market and it's collecting all this good stuff. Um, that's what um, they would mean by, by Sabbatarian. So on this notion of, you know, kind of evangelical social activism, it's true they wanted to reform society and make it more Christian, but you have to realize, again, contextually, you don't have a separation between church and state. Politics, especially in England, were inherently religious, and religion was political. There wasn't, you know, like we have it today, it's like, oh, there's a separation, and there's debates on whether that's even what, you know, the Bill of Rights and Constitution even had in mind. But anyways, they didn't have that. It was unified. So if the state says, hey, here's what we're doing, um, the state would actually say, you know, church, here's what you're going to do. Here's how you're going to worship, and here's what you're going to preach. And so you have that tied together. And this is actually, I think, at one of the core faults of the Puritan movement. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I know I've, I've quoted him many times before. He's, he died in um, 1981, I believe. Uh, but he was a, a preacher in England, obviously hundreds of years after the Puritans. And he, he kind of gave birth to this kind of rediscovery of the Puritans. And he's a Presbyterian, and he actually said, you know, this is one of the significant flaws, was actually the, you know, the linking of church and state, and the Presbyterians not wanting to work with the Congregationalists, and the Congregationalists not wanting to work with the Presbyterians. He actually even says, he, he blames it mainly on the Presbyterians, which is Baptists, we're like, yeah, it's the Presbyterians' fault. Um, and he, as a Presbyterian, says it's their fault, so I'll just leave it at that. Um, but you have that link between church and state. I would argue more than transforming society, their main emphasis was on transforming the self and the church, okay? Their main emphasis was on transforming the self and the church. I already mentioned sanctification. It's the same note here. I think that was the core of their social activism. And they're thinking, look, if the individuals, if the selves are being, uh, you know, reformed, if they're being transformed, if they're being sanctified, then a bunch of selves, then the church is going to change. And if the churches are going to change, then society is going to change. You see the link between the two? That's what they would make. Um, but I would argue the emphasis was on the self and on the church. Just an example of this uh, self-transformation. Uh, what do I mean by that? George Swinnick, he wrote The Christian Man's Calling. Okay? This was a sermon series. I don't know how many sermons it was, but it was all on 1 Timothy 4.7. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. It's over 1,000 pages. Okay? Like, that's a lot of sermons on one verse, okay? Um, you get to the point, you actually read, I mean, it's amazing what he writes, but you realize it's like, okay, this guy is not really preaching this verse. This is an expositional preaching. This is theological preaching is what I would call it. He's taking that kind of as a launching pad to make all these points. Um, but this is that transformation of self. He's not at all talking about work salvation. It's simply an exposition on how a life transformed by grace is going to be changed and actually live out the gospel. Just a couple of quotes on this. Um, idleness is the mother of unrighteousness. They were, uh, the Puritans were very, very hard workers. And really it was because they thought that idleness led to sin. And I mean, that was part of it. They thought, obviously, we need to work hard because, you know, as Colossians says, work unto the Lord, not to man. Uh, but also they realized that idleness would lead to sin. So he says here, never be idle. But be always well employed, for in my own experience I have found it. When the devil came to tempt me, I told him that I was not at leisure to hearken to his temptations, but was busy in my calling, and thereby resisted his assaults. It's a really good principle, right? You know, if you're struggling with sin because you're all alone by yourself, 
for two hours and no one's around and you've got nothing to do, it makes sense that you're falling into temptation. Uh, and so he would argue, don't do that. Don't put yourself in those positions. Don't be idle. Be continually diligent at work or even enjoying, you know, leisures, things like that. He goes on. Uh, this, is, this is a, whew, ouch quote, but it's really good. If men are so busy as not to attend their souls, God will be so busy as to not bestow salvation. How much time do you squander away in long meals and vain sports and idle discourse and superfluous sleep? And yet you have the face to tell God that you have no time in a whole day to seek his favor and to mind your eternal felicity. The truth is you do not so much want time as waste time. Oh, that's, it's heavy. That's like, yeah. Oh God, I don't have time to do this, but you have time to do all these other things. Um, so again, this is not, sometimes people say the Puritans were legalistic. That is just not true. Legalism as a system means I need to do all these things to earn my salvation. Puritans would clearly reject that. They were, I mean, it's the whole Catholic system that they hated, okay? But they saw that a life transformed by grace is going to live a different way. Does that make sense? Um, and so you kind of see that. That's just a teasing of an example of Swinnock. I've, I've really appreciated Swinnock. I think he's one of the more easier Puritans to understand. And so he's a good starting place. So that's kind of the social activism, you know, the pursuit of self-transformation. I wanted to mention evangelism at this point. The Puritans love the gospel, okay? The Puritans absolutely love the gospel. I think Jonathan Edwards, you know, the sinner's in the hands of an angry God. That's what we think of. The Puritans just like, ah, oh, just angry. That's not true, okay? They did preach judgment, but they loved to preach the gospel. They loved to preach grace. Maybe you've heard, you know, in some circles, you know, the distinction between the law and the gospel. Oh, we need to, you know, where, what's the emphasis? Well, the Puritans did both really well. They preached the law. They would preach the terrors of the law, the judgment that rightly falls on mankind if we do not obey the law completely, which none of us can. Well, the purpose of the law is to drive us to the gospel. It's to drive us to our need for grace. In light of the law, we see how wretched and sinful we are. And so they would do that, and they would also preach, and they loved to preach the glories of Christ and the appealing nature of him just to flee towards him. Both are vital in ministry. They love to preach Christ. Probably my favorite sermon series of all time. Sermon series title, okay? Mark has got nothing on this, okay? Richard Sibbs. Richard Sibbs, he's most well known for his sermon series. Um, it's actually a book. We'll give it out in a couple of weeks. called A Bruised Reed, okay? This is not my favorite one. This is what he's most well known for, A Bruised Reed. Uh, a Bruised Reed is this, this wonderful meditation on Christ's love for weak sinners. He's drawn on Isaiah 42, um, where it talks about the servant of the Lord, a bruised reed he will not break. And he expands on that, um, you know, a soul that is bruised, that is despairing, that is sorrowful. You know, Christ is compassionate and merciful. That's what he's most well known for. But, I mean, he preached a sermon series on the Song of Solomon. And this is common in the, in the Puritans, by the way. They would allegorize the Song of Solomon um, as, you know, it's allegorical for Christ's love for his church. Um, and Richard Sibbs preached a sermon series on Song of Solomon's, and it was called Bowels Opened. That's good. I, like, I just, I stumbled upon that. I was like, wow, this is like a bathroom joke. I don't know. Like, it's just, it's not good, but Bowels Opened. Or, I love his subtitle, or A Discovery of the Near and Dear Love, Union and Communion Betwixt Christ and the Church, and Consequently Between Him and Every Believing Saint. It's like, whoa, it's a, it's a long subtitle there. But uh, yeah, so 
that's just free. That I don't really have anything to go off of that. I just thought maybe you'd get a kick out of that. Uh, bowels open. So the Puritans are very much evangelistic. They love to preach the gospel. I wanted to give a couple historical anecdotes. These are just some interesting stories on that topic of evangelism that maybe hopefully would uh, encourage you guys. Two Puritan preachers and actually how they got saved. So William Perkins, he's kind of known as the, the godfather of Puritanism. He's kind of the first to formulate some of the doctrine and really clarify what they're saying. And we'll see the development of how the Westminster Confession of Faith picks up on what he's saying. Um, he's one of, well, I already said that. He, he wasn't always a moral man, okay? Sometimes we think of all these guys like they were always righteous. You know, the Puritans, they never sinned. They never did anything like this. Perkins was actually known as the town drunk, okay? He was a drinker, a drunkard. He dabbled in witchcraft, okay? Um, like, not a guy that we go like, he's a good guy, right? No. Um, and actually, how he got saved, he's a student at Cambridge, and legend has it that he's, you know, drunk out late at night, and he hears a woman scolding her son and saying, hey, if you don't, you know, fix your act, I'm going to hand you over to drunken Perkins over there. And uh, he hears that and goes, wow, I'm pathetic. Like, this is horrible. And the Lord actually uses that, this lady's public correction of her child, uh, to bring him to salvation. So I would just say that. It's like, moms, you never know how, you know, your public discipline, how the Lord's going to use that, right? Like, you know, your child, you know, might be the next William Perkins, or the drunk person across the street might be the next William Perkins, right? So you hear that with William Perkins. John Bunyan, I actually don't know, I don't know if you guys can see this, I don't know if he had a lazy eye or if just people, they couldn't paint really well. I just wanted to say that. I, <laughs> nothing against people with lazy eyes. I just don't know. Like, I've looked at this picture. It's just like, I don't know. Maybe he did. Um, John Bunyan, he would say in his own words that his childhood was lawless, uh, rebellious, filled with cursing, blaspheming. He actually joins Cromwell's army at the age of 16, and he fights in the English Civil War. Remember how we talked about that starting in uh, 1642? He fights in the English Civil War on the side of Parliament against the king. That's the winning side. Um, and so he was a soldier in Cromwell's army. He just talks about how his life was filled with sinfulness. Um, in 1648, he married, a, in his own words, a God-fearing woman. And therefore, he started going to church and he stopped swearing. But by his own admission, he doesn't think he's saved yet. Um, he just realizes, you know, this woman is. I need to clean up my act. Okay? And so he starts going to church. One day in Bedford, England, um, he's traveling by the church there, and several women are sitting at the church door there conversing about Christ and the new birth. They're just glorying in the gospel, okay? And uh, historically, these women, they're part of a congregational church um, there in Bedford. Um, as members, you know, one of their tasks is evangelism. They were just simply doing that by, you know, sharing the gospel with one another, glorying in that. Um, one congregationalist, he wrote, so approvingly of the heavenly talk of his female members, I just quoted this from someone, while at the market that scoffers derided them as women preachers, right? He didn't like them because, you know, the women were sharing the gospel so much. Oh, you women preachers. And anyways, they're sharing the gospel. Bunyan passes by, and he's just pierced by their joy for the Lord. He's like, man, I don't have that. Um, and so he just sees their evident grace, their fluency in the Bible. He begins to doubt his standing in Christ. He struggles with doubt and assurance actually pretty much his whole life. Uh, but really there he realizes, I'm not saved. And he turns to the Lord. A couple years after this, he eventually moves to Bedford, England. He joins that church. He eventually becomes one of the pastors there. And that's where he's eventually imprisoned for preaching the gospel. 
He's in prison for three years, and they tell him, hey, stop preaching, and we'll let you go. We won't put you in prison. And he says, and I quote, if I'm freed today, I'll preach tomorrow. And so he goes on preaching, and he's actually in jail for 12 years. That's when he writes Pilgrim's Progress, okay? He writes Pilgrim's Progress in prison. And so all this is to say, don't forget the, you know, the power of your public testimony, okay? Whether it's chastising your kids in public uh, or just simply conversing with Christ. Um, pay no attention to the sad child over there. Um, she'll be fine. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I just thought there were some encouraging historical anecdotes. Neither of those cases, people went out to do evangelism. They were just living their life, living out the gospel, and the Lord used it to save people. So don't forget the power of your public testimony or your public scolding. Okay, point six. Uh, And I actually don't think this is as central as Hall makes it up to be. Divine providence and apocalypticism. You know, one of these guiding principles of Puritanism. It's still important. Certainly, God's sovereignty and his providence is central to the Puritan movement. Okay? They did have high, a very high view of God, um, clearly uh, providence. Apocalypticism there, I don't think it's as important as he makes it up to be. But the Puritans, they pick up where Calvin and Luther and Zwingli and the mainland, you know, continental uh, European reformers pick up. They start interpreting all of Scripture more literally, okay? They're starting to go back to, it's like, okay, well, what is the text? What's the historical context? What's the literary context? How do we understand Scripture according to the normal rules of grammar? And that includes prophecy. So you begin to see in Puritanism the rise of what we'd call post-millennial thought. I'm not going to get into millennial views and all that stuff today. But they saw um, a glorious future, a reign of Christ's people on the earth. Essentially up until this time, and a lot of this really begins with Augustine, um, who did a lot of great stuff, but I think he was wrong on this, um, of this rise of amillennialism and kind of this spiritual reigning of Christ on the earth, and that there's a heavenly realm, a heavenly kingdom. You know, when Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, that means we shouldn't expect Jesus to return and reign on the earth for a thousand years before the eternal state. That, um, that's just clearly a heavenly realm. Well, the Puritans were like, actually, wait, the Bible clearly teaches that the Lord is going to reign on the earth. And so we would disagree with them in their timing. They would see it as Christ's people reign for a glorious period, and then Christ returns. That's why we call it post-millennium, uh, post-millennial thought, is that there's a glorious reign. Jesus returns after post. We, as premillennials, would say, you know, the return of Christ happens pre-before the millennium. Does that make sense? But they did have an emphasis bringing it down from the spiritual, bringing it back to the reality on earth. They saw pastors like Daniel 2, um, you know, um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue um, was important to that. They would see the Pope as the Antichrist. He needs to be brought down to usher in this glorious reign. Um, and so you do have a, a rediscovery there. Yes? Apocalypticism. It's just a fancy word for essentially the book of Revelation. Okay. Um, apocalypticism, dealing with end times. Um, So like Revelation, um, literally in Greek, I'm pretty sure it's apocalyptos, um, the unveiling, okay? And so they would see apocalypticism. Basically what he's trying to say there is a re-emphasis on the end times. Um, Apocalypticism, the end of the world is coming. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
And there's actually, I wasn't going to talk about this, but I will. Um, sometimes, you know, people say, it's, you know, it's like you're dispensational, you, return, you know, believe in a, a literal return of the Jews to their land. You know, that's not in Reformed theology and all this stuff. I was shocked. I can send this to you if you guys want. Owen, um, Owen wrote a seven-volume commentary on the book of Hebrews. Like, it's like 7,000 pages just on the book of Hebrews. In his introduction, there's this amazing section where, like, as a premillennial dispensationalist, I can agree with everything he's saying. He's like, there's going to be a glorious future of Israel. They're going to be restored to the land. They're going to have prominence as a nation. Jews in mass quantity are going to be saved. And I'm like, whoa, like, this is Owen. Like, Owen is like reformed homeboy number 101. Like, he's the dude. And typically, reformed guys will say, you know, oh, yeah, all that Israel stuff, that's later. It's like, uh, no, it's not, okay? Cromwell, actually, Oliver Cromwell, remember when he's reigning, I think 1649 to 1658, he, I mean, I disagree with him, but he actually uh, tries to bring a bunch of Jews to England to get them saved, to usher in the return of Christ. Um, So... I mean, just the, the whole Israel stuff, it's there throughout church history. It's not a recent development, okay? Okay, so I wanted to get through that last week. We've got 15 minutes to get through this. That's okay. Uh, I hope that that maybe put some of the meat on the bones of those Puritan principles. Now I want to dive into their theology, okay? Some of these central motifs of Puritan theology. There's a number of ways to do this. I want to start big picture and then kind of move to hopefully ending on William Perkins, a golden chain, and really talking about salvation. Number one, how did they organize the Bible? Okay, how did they organize the Bible? Covenant theology, okay? Covenant theology. Um, This is a very important, and I'm not going to spend enough time on this, okay? Covenant theology was a theological system for providing structure to the Bible, okay? How do we organize all of Scripture, okay? Um... (laughs) <laughs> I'm, I'm going to get, I'm going to critique, I mean, people aren't going to like the way I say this, but it, I have to say this because it's just, Presbyterians probably don't like this. But, and this was like a light bulb dawned on me, this was like four or five years ago. When you hear covenant theology, don't think the biblical covenants, okay? Don't think, like what? Like name some covenants, what do we know? Abrahamic, Abrahamic covenant, Davidic. Davidic covenant, Noahic. Noahic, right? The new covenant, right? Um, you've got all these covenants. That's not what we're talking about. When you hear R.C. Sproul, you know, recording, he talks about covenant theology, or you hear Kevin DeYoung talk about covenant theology. This is what they're getting at, actually, okay? They're talking about the covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, the covenant of grace. What are we talking about here? And we actually have, by the way, a lot of similarity. I would, at least. Um, I would disagree with the terminology, the content of what they're saying. I can actually get on board with covenant of redemption, okay? Covenant of redemption. In Latin, it'll be the pactum salutis. Maybe you'll see people talk about that. That's what they're talking about, covenant of redemption. Essentially what this means is that before the foundation of the world, okay, when all you had was the Trinity, okay, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit entered into what I would just say is an agreement that God was going to redeem for his son a bride, okay? He's going to save people. That is the covenant of redemption. Most notably, where are they getting this from? That's succinctly stated. Ephesians 1, verse 4 and following speaks of this agreement, this pact. Even as he, right, God the Father chose us in him, that's Christ, before the foundation of the world, okay? So the bride of Christ was set apart when? 
before the foundation of the world, before all of creation, okay? That's that agreement or pact within the Trinity before the foundation of the world, okay? That's the covenant of redemption. Covenant of works, okay? Covenant of works. Essentially, what they would say is God promised Adam and Eve eternal life on the condition of obedience, okay? Hey, you can do anything you want. The only thing you can't do is what? Don't eat of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, okay? You had one job, and they blew it, right? Uh, but that's essentially the covenant of works. If they would have obeyed, they would have entered into eternal life. Now, this gets back into the covenant of redemption. God had predestined that to not even happen, to bring glory to his son. You get into pre-lapsarianism, infralapsarianism. I'm not talking about that. You're like, what in the world did he just say? That was gibberish, okay? But thereby, as our head, Adam, as our representative, his guilt was imputed to all mankind, okay? And Romans 5 talks about this, right? When Adam sinned, we all sinned. Everyone is born in sin. Their sin was imputed to us. All of our faculties, mind, will, uh, spirit, heart, affections have been corrupted by the fall. We are completely dead and without hope in the world, okay? Because Adam did not uh, succeed in the covenant of works, the covenant of grace, okay? And this is where, as a dispensational church, we would have the most disagreement with traditional covenant theology, in Genesis 3.15, we get this glimmer of grace, right? You know, God says, in the day that you eat of the fruit, you'll surely die. Well, what happens? They actually don't die. I mean, they spiritually die. I mean, there's some nuance we could get into there. But actually, God is gracious to them, right? He does not kill them. And he actually promises in Genesis 3.15 that he's going to send, what? A redeemer. There is one who is going to atone for sins and actually crush the head of the serpent. And so God freely offers redemption to sinners and eternal life to those who repent and believe. They would say, um, and I agree with them with this, is Christ actually fulfilled the covenant of works. He actually perfectly did obey Christ. This is where sometimes you'll hear about the active and passive obedience of Christ. A simple way to define it is this, is Christ not only died for your sins, he actually lived for you as well. He lived to fulfill all righteousness, okay? It's not that he just atoned for our sins. We actually uh, are imputed his perfect righteousness because he lived a sinless life of perfect obedience. Does that make sense? That's what they're getting at here with covenant of works, covenant of grace. But the difference here, where he most strongly disagrees, that all the biblical covenants, and hopefully this will start to make sense for some of you guys, how they can baptize babies, um, is all the biblical covenants are simply a manifestation of the covenant of grace. Okay, so the Noahic covenant, that's just a mini covenant under the covenant of grace, okay? Abrahamic covenant, same thing, covenant of grace. Mosaic covenant, the law, covenant of grace. Oof, I don't know about that. Uh, Davidic covenant, covenant of grace. New covenant, covenant of grace. Does that make sense? All those biblical covenants explicitly in scripture, they just put under this umbrella of the covenant of grace. And this is why you get reformed infant baptism, okay? Because you have Abrahamic covenant. Who's supposed to be circumcised, right? All males, right? You need to be circumcised because you're part of the covenant community. Does that mean that all of those infants are going to be regenerate believers in that covenant community? No, okay? If you guys don't hear that, hear that very clearly. Infant Baptists like, you know, R.C. Sproul, Kevin DeYoung, they do not believe that infant baptism saves that person. It's a visible marker that they are now a part of the covenant community, just like with Old Testament Israel. So in Old Testament Israel, they were circumcised, they're a part of the visible community, but that doesn't actually mean they're saved. Well, um, Abrahamic covenant, that's part of the covenant of grace. New covenant, exact same thing. The new covenant marker, rather than circumcision, is infant baptism. 
doesn't mean they're saved. It means they're part of the visible church, but not that they're actually regenerate. Maybe they will be at some point. Does that make sense? Okay, yes? I'm not saying I agree with it. Okay. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, I disagree with it because I, I don't think it's what the Bible teaches. And I think the new covenant is very clear, especially in Jeremiah 31. I will make a new covenant, not like the one I made with your fathers. Okay, so I would just say textually, it's very clear to me that the new covenant is not like what we have seen before. And that the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, he says that that covenant community, when the new covenant comes, every single, of, every single member of that community will know me. It says, no longer will that you say to another, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. So that's where we get into, well, the Bible is very clear, I would argue, from Acts and the Gospels and the Epistles, that it's talking about believers' baptism. Only believers are to be baptized because the covenant community is supposed to be regenerate. Only believers who are part of the covenant community. So there's a difference between the two. So, yeah, I would say they have things wrong and they're diminishing the work of Christ. They would say the same thing back to us. You're diminishing the work of Christ because you're doing this. You know, it's just like, so... Yeah, that's why there's differences, because <laughs> we're interpreting things differently. That is a, I spent eight, nine minutes on that, and you need to spend like 90 minutes, but it's okay. Um, that's a reductionistic way of looking at covenant theology, but I would hope that actually someone who is a covenant theologian would agree with what I said. I'm not trying to, you know, straw man argument. Um, I've actually learned to understand it much, much more, and I get it as a theological system. I just think it's wrong. Does that make sense? Okay, number one, covenant theology. Number two, sin. Some of these central things they talk about. Maybe it's not going to pop down. There it is. Sin. As a result of Adam's sin, all mankind is tainted by sin. It's what we call total depravity. Um, we are totally enslaved to sin. We cannot submit to God out of a heart that wants to. doesn't mean you can't do a morally good thing according to God's law. You can. It means you do it for the wrong reasons. Okay? You cannot wholeheartedly embrace Christ. We are dead in our transgressions and sins. I would just add this. The Puritans were not Wesleyan holiness people. If you're like, what are we talking about? Well, John and Charles Wesley, they get into this sinless perfectionism. You can reach a point in this life where you will no longer sin. The Puritans did not believe that. Don't get that confused. They write a lot about sin and the believer's continuing struggle with sin. One aspect of their theology is so central. We're going to spend a whole week talking about this uh, with John Owen talking about sin. Number three, faith and repentance. The efficient cause of salvation is God's sovereign grace. That individual um, is still responsible to repent and believe and have faith in the gospel. But God's sovereign grace saves that person, changes them, gives them a new heart that willingly flees and runs to Christ. By the way, you can look up all of this. If you just Google Westminster Confession of Faith, you can see everything that they're going to say. Or Second London Baptist Confession. Like, just Google that. You'll find everything there. Number four, assurance. I think this is always a central topic to the believer. We're always dealing with assurance of salvation. How can I know that I'm saved? 
Puritans can be a massive help on this. The believer is meant to be saved and know that he's saved, but that doesn't mean there will be times in your life where you'll struggle with that. Um, True believers oftentimes don't have assurance of salvation, and they talk about this uh, a lot. Sometimes the Puritans can be kind of characterized as this introspective, just so observed with, ah, am I doing the right thing? And there is a critique to be had with that, but even the Puritans would say, is there a problem when you're just looking at yourself and not to Christ? Yeah, you can overplay that self-examination, and that is not good. I've mentioned uh, Nehemiah Wallington before. Um, He was a Puritan woodworker. He struggled massively in his life early on with introspection and and, um, dealing with assurance of salvation. He attempted to take his own life on several occasions when he was young. Um, Later on in his life, he began to grow in his understanding of resting in Christ alone for salvation. He actually becomes a lay pastor or a um, actually a ruling elder. He was a Presbyterian um, is actually what they would call them, but, you know, a lay pastor, basically. And um, he actually counseled people who struggled with this. I think it was pretty interesting. It's pretty neat to read about. He struggled this early on in his life, and by the end of his life, he did not. I thought this was a really good quote. I may look to my graces as evidence of my part in Christ and salvation, but not my causes. In other words, I can look at what's going on in my life, my sanctification, my good works, as evidence that Christ is working in me, but that's not the ground of my assurance, right? I may make use of duties as means to bring me to Christ and salvation, but not to be saved by them. Look, I can spend time in the Word. I can spend time in prayer. I can spend time in church to bring me to Christ. But the importance is Christ, right? It's not that we just read our Bibles and we're fine. It's that we read our Bibles to seek and savor the glories of Christ revealed therein, right? I love the second part. God looks not so much at what we are, but what we would be. Neither doth does, is what he's saying there with doth, neither does he measure us so much by our actions as by our affections. And he's dealing with that introspection issue there. He's like, look, that person truly struggling with sin who is seeking to put it to death and to glorify Christ, that's what the Lord sees, right? That person seeking to honor him. Another great place to look at this is the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, They deal with the issue of assurance. Um, I'm going to get through I don't have time to spend time on this, but I would just argue you need to look at Westminster Confession chapter, all of chapter 18 deal with the issue of assurance, and it's excellent, okay? I would just verbatim everything that they say. I think it's four points, 18.123 and 4. It is so good. Um, talks about how, you know, we can have assurance, how we can lose assurance, means of keeping assurance. There's three points here, three proposed grounds. Number one, the promises of the gospel. That's what you need to remind yourself of. Number two, fruits, evidence of salv- uh, sanctification. Number three, the testimony of the Holy Spirit. I want to get through this relatively quick. Number five, the law. The law The law is the instrument by which the Holy Spirit convicts, cultivates a humiliation for sin in the individual. It's the normal means by which God calls sinners to repentance. After salvation, the law is still a guide. It helps us to know right uh, behavior, helps us to know what the Lord would be pleased with us to do. We're free from the curse of the law because Christ became a curse for us. And those are just some central motifs. I wanted to end. We're supposed to end right now, but just hang with me for five minutes. Okay. I wanted to end kind of on this doctrine of salvation. Okay. A golden chain by William Perkins. I tried to find a graphic, you know, where like I could link them all, like chain links. But I was like, this is a waste of everyone's time. I was like, why am I going to sit here for two hours trying to do this? I'm not a graphic design person. But kind of this all linked together. So Perkins wrote... um, 
a book called A Golden Chain. And really, it's kind of a whole systematic theology, but he really becomes well known for linking these things together. Predestination, effectual calling, justification, sanctification, and glorification. And really, he's drawing on Romans 8, 29 to 30. Okay? Romans 8, 29 to 30. I would just encourage you guys, if you don't know that verse, uh, those two verses, to look it up. Verse 30 starts this, And those whom he predestined, this is God the Father, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified, okay? And so Perkins, along with the rest of the Puritans, really saw that in between justification and glorification is sanctification. This realm of, this is actually, once you're justified, before you're glorified, this is where church life happens, right? Like if you're in Christ, this is where you are, okay? So your Christian life, where are you? Here. Like you don't get re-justified, you don't get glorified and then get demoted, right? Like, I mean just in case you didn't know that, Um, right? You're justified, and this is where actually the Christian life works. And so he spends a lot of time talking about sanctification. Just quickly, I wanted to go through each of those points, predestination, effectual calling, justification, sanctification. And you see these, if you compared, if you did side-by-side Perkins and Westminster Confession of Faith, they're the same thing. I just want to bring up the Westminster Confession of Faith because you see it there. What do we mean by predestination? Well, by the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestinated unto everlasting life and others foreordained to everlasting death. And so actually what you see there is kind of, I would argue, at least implicit, is double predestination. Okay? What's interesting is actually when you come to the Second London Baptist Confession in 1689, just a few years later, I actually agree with this wording a lot better. They say, by his decree, the decree of God, and for the manifestation of his glory, God has predestined or foreordained certain men and angels to eternal life through Jesus Christ, thus revealing his grace. Others, whom he has left to perish in their sins, shows the terror of his justice. I actually think that's better language because it better reconciles Romans 9, which clearly talks about God predestining some vessels uh, of grace. And in the second half, um, there, what it actually is, is there's a distinction between an active verb, God actively does this, and passively is the second one, those left to condemnation. So um, that's just, if you want to talk to me more about that, you don't know what I'm talking about. Talk to me later. Um, effectual calling. You see this in chapter 10, verse 2. Um, effectual calling, this is the internal calling, the work of the Holy Spirit, as opposed to the external call, you know, like the call of the, co- the gospel goes out. This effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man. There is not anything that you do that merits God's grace to save you. He sovereignly saves you because it was in his pleasure. It was in his will. Not at all at anything foreseen in man. Who is altogether passive therein? Just in case you understand, you didn't do anything until being quickened. That's just an old English word for made alive. Being made alive, renewed by the Holy Spirit, he is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the gift, uh, grace offered and conveyed to it. This is getting at that, if you're thinking of tulip, um, you know, the five solas, this is getting at that irresistible grace. God's sovereign grace changes the heart of the person. You know, it's not that God saves someone and they're like, I don't want to be saved. No! It's not how it is. Like, he changes that person such that they love Christ and run to him. I'm glad Easton found that funny, Right? That's not what we're talking about, okay? Justification. Justification. Yeah, he's not drawing them, kicking and screaming. Those whom God effectually calleth, he also freely justifieth. See how they're just drawing on Romans 8? It's the same language, right? Oh, so if they've been called, 
You know, if they've been uh, foreordained, predestined, they've been called. If they've been called, they've been justified. Not by infusing righteousness into them. It's not some weird Roman Catholic, you know, mystically by performing the Mass. Righteousness is infused into you and now you're righteous. No, you're declared righteous by faith. You are righteous because Christ is righteous. But by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone. You are declared justified because of Christ and for his sake alone. Sanctification, last one. Oh, excuse me, one more after this. Sanctification, those who, they who are effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them, are further sanctified, really and personally. In other words, there's no carnal Christian Christian who, you know, lives a sinful life. They've been justified, but they live in sin wholeheartedly. No. Through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, by his word and spirit dwelling in them. Glorification. I'm not going to read this whole one. You guys know what that is. It means you die and you get glorified. Um, you see that there? So now we finally ended five minutes late. It's okay. The Puritans were simply picking up where the mainland continental European reformers left off, okay? They're continuing to develop this biblical, theological understanding of the Christian faith. That was their foundation. So hopefully now, after three weeks, you're like, okay, I kind of understand what they were. I kind of understand what they were doing and who they were and when they lived, okay? Now I want to get into this point, too. We've got, what, seven, six weeks? I don't know how many weeks we have. Uh, kind of delving into it, it's like, okay, how did what they thought and taught about sin affect my life as a believer, okay? What did they think about God, and how did that affect their walk with the Lord? What about uh, church and worship, marriage, family, all these things? So we're going to pick up next week with uh, George Swinnick's book, uh, The Greatness, excuse me, no, The Incomparableness of God, The Incomparableness of God, and I'll actually give that book out next week. Really, how do we meditate and delight in God? Book giveaway, last book, last thing. Uh, this is spiritual mindedness. I'm not saying the first two books weren't good, but we're getting into some good stuff now. Um, spiritual mindedness by John Owen. I actually have not read this one, but I can just tell you that it's going to be amazing. Um, he is dealing with in this book Romans eight six. It is essentially two hundred pages all on Romans eight six. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. So he's thinking through what does it mean to think you know, and set your mind simply on worldly thoughts. And what does it mean? How do we live by the Spirit and set our mind on the Spirit, okay? First hand up, Colleen. All right, Colleen gets it. Next week, we've got more books. You guys are dismissed.